0: Good morning everyone, my name is Tim, one of the ministers here uh, and we're going to be spending some time in the Curious Book of Revelation. Uh, but before we get there, I want to ask the question. Uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we live in, the, in a country that's probably the freest in the world or amongst them to be a follower of Jesus. There's no one taking a name at the door There are no laws about being here or owning a Bible, and yet there are many things that make it hard to be a Christian, and indeed some of these freedoms might be part of it. There seem to be many tempting alternatives around, many things that might cause us to question our beliefs, to have a lack of confidence in what we've been taught. What is it that makes it hard for you to be a Christian here in Sydney? And what are some of the discouragements to hold to beliefs that increasingly are at odds with those around us? Is it the discouragements of seeing friends and family and children drift away from the faith? Is it the discouragement of struggling to see God as real, as caring, as near? One of the things I frequently find frustrating and discouraging is seeing the depiction of Christians uh, and Christianity in the church um, in the media, uh, in drama, TV shows, movies. It seems Christians in, if they ever appear, they always appear because they want to they're, they're a plot aid, right? And they either come across as condescendingly quaint and old-fashioned, ineffectual, out of touch or ignorant, busybodies, judgmental, bigoted. When you retire and you get to watch Midsummer Murders, right? the vicar is always cunningly wicked or raving mad. (laughs) And badly acted. But if this is the way we're portrayed in drama, it doesn't get much better in the real world, does it? We see these, uh, these same traits applied to us in news media, on blogs, and in the public discourse. So in a society where we're, we may, may feel that we're increasingly sidelined in our culture, where we're told that we're unjust and unloving and immoral, The very principles that we seek, although not always perfectly, but the very principles we seek to uphold, it can be discouraging. Perhaps that's not the challenge, it's more a desire to just conform, to absorb the priorities of those around, to go with the flow, to give up on our faith because alternatives seem so much easier. Or, whatever our challenges are living the Christian life in the 21st century in Sydney, the early church in the latter part of the first century had it much worse. The church to which the book of Revelation was written uh, was in part, uh, parts of the empire facing severe persecution. The enforced religion of the day was the worship of the emperor, and there were harsh penalties. For those who resisted the church it also seems to facing heretical teachings false teachings uh, that was undermining their confidence and their beliefs and furthermore to an even greater extent than we might feel it here in Sydney there was the great temptation to compromise with the pagan society around them and so in the midst of this context the book of Revelation was sent as a letter to encourage the church. But just as it was sent to them then as an encouragement, it can be an encouragement to us now in 21st century Willoughby. Now, Revelation is a book that some of us get very nervous about approaching. It seems to have served as a happy hunting ground for cults for doomsday preppers, and for heavy metal lyricists. And it's a style of literature which is largely unfamiliar to us. It uses a lot of symbolism, but we shouldn't be scared off by that. We should come to the book of Revelation looking at it more as a picture book than a puzzle book. There are rich visual images, but they don't necessarily need to be unpacked in order for us to understand the powerful force behind them. So my advice is that the book of Revelation is best read as a teenager approaches a science fiction novel, right? You don't need to understand what's going on in all the background of all the baddies that are there. Read it like a novel, the science fiction, but teaching us the truth. But read it more like that then a first year university student studying English literature would read Charles Dickens, right, picking apart everything and trying to see extra meaning in it all. If you read Revelation like that, you'll get bogged down and miss the big picture. Often we find in the book of Revelation that where an image does need to be understood, it's often explained in its context or by other parts of the Bible. Whatever revelation is, it was certainly not, God didn't intend a letter to be written to the first century church that was primarily about 21st century geopolitics. Okay, so don't waste your time looking for coded references to Trump or to ISIS or to the rise of China. The book of Revelation was written as an encouragement to the early church and it serves still as an encouragement to us. And the first encouragement we see from this first vision that John experiences is the encouragement to remember who Jesus is. And we see, firstly, what John heard. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 9, John introduces this vision. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here John is sharing in the persecution of the church. Patmos, although it's a Greek island, was not a holiday resort. It was a penal colony. And it seems that John has been exiled there because of his preaching about Jesus. And so John finds himself there one Sunday, the Lord's Day, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he hears a loud and authoritative voice, a voice that commands him to write to the seven churches. The seven churches listed there are all churches in cities around what's today Western Turkey. But as he's commanded to write to seven churches... The number seven is one of those numbers that carries extra meaning. The number seven often refers to completeness or uh, the spiritual good. And, And we still use that phrase, well, you don't hear it much these days, but we all know when somebody says, I've sailed the seven seas, right, there's that sense of completeness. It's not that they number off the seven and they've got one more than six and one fewer than eight that they've sailed. It means I've sailed all around the world. And so as this letter is written to seven churches, there's a sense in which it's written for all churches. And if seven represents that thing which is spiritually good, that's not to say that these churches are perfect. If you were to read on through chapter 2 and chapter 3, you'll see that the churches are messed up like every other church in the world, even like St. Stephen's. So John heard this command to write down what he saw and to send it to the seven churches, to all the churches. And then John describes what he sees as he turns around, standing amongst these golden lampstands is this terrific figure. He's not introduced, but it's a clear, clear inferences that this figure he meets is Jesus. Now, I don't know what you're typical image that you go to when you think about Jesus is? Was it a helpless baby in a manger? Well, Jesus was indeed that, but not only that. Is it a bloodied saviour on a cross? Well, Jesus was certainly that, but not only that. Is it the perfect human, six foot three inches Blue eyes, perfectly (coughs) shampooed hair, floating stainlessly across the dusty Middle East without any expression on his face. Well, that's just make-believe of storybooks. Perhaps you don't have dominating image of Jesus perhaps you never think about who Jesus is but have a look at this image that John sees have a look from verse 13 and amongst the lampstands was some standing someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest the hair on his head was white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were blazing fire His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, you don't need any code book to decipher the image, the power of this image that's presented. It's no wonder that John fell at this figure's feet as though he was dead. In fact, there's so much in this image that it's hard to hold it all together in a cohesive uh, picture. But I don't think we need to. I think this is presented as a kind of a montage of images, one stacked upon the other, that all point to different aspects of who Jesus is. And as powerful this image with Uh, with a loud voice and with burning eyes and burnished feet and a double-edged sword, as powerful as that image is, even more powerful for those who had a good knowledge of the Old Testament. Because there are lots of allusions there to images that are contained in Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah, pockets of literature similar in style to Revelation. Revelation. And they point to the nature of God and uh, and those He's chosen. So in Daniel seven, uh, Daniel sees an image of evil beasts like empires that rise and fall until finally one, like a son of man, comes before God Himself. And this man-like person is given all authority over all people for all time. He's given an everlasting rule. And all would worship him. And here John sees one like a son of man standing amongst the lampstands. A clear image of the one to whom all power and authority has been given. Over all the nations and rulers of the world. On top of that the robe and the sash he wears are those of a king or a priest. The pure white hair and blazing eyes are The characteristics of the wise God Himself. There are images of a powerful warrior with this brass like, um, bronze like, burnished uh, body, a loud, authoritative voice that speaks powerful words of justice from His sword like mouth. The image that John sees here is that the Son of Man is the man, Christ Jesus himself, who is the very true God, an awesome figure who's awesome in power and majesty and authority and purity. How does that image of Jesus measure up against how you normally regard him? How does that image make you feel as you hear it, as you read it? Can you imagine the might of Rome might have seemed all powerful to the early church that was facing persecution? But how does Caesar look alongside this image of Christ? How do our leaders look alongside this image of Christ? This is reminiscent I think of that Psalm 2 that Sarah read earlier of the nations conspiring against God and against his anointed one and here we have an image that says whatever strength you have whatever power you think you wield the nations of the world who stand against God will not stand. Their rebellion will not last against him and against his king, his son that he has appointed. The book of Revelation is like a symbolic rolling back of the facade of life as we see it, to see some of the truth behind the scenes. And this image behind the scenes is that the reality of all things is that there is an all-powerful, almighty Christ, and the hope for all nations, all rulers, and every one of us is to trust in Him and His mercy and His justice because we're entirely unable to stand against Him. Do you feel the force of this image? I wonder if any of you have seen a main battle tank in action. Anyone? One or two? Before you see it, you feel it. There's the vibrations you start to feel through the ground, even perhaps moving to vibrations in your chest itself. And then you'll start to hear the deep, powerful growl of the motor and the haunting squeak of metal on metal as the caterpillar tracks slowly move across the ground. If you see it come over the rise of a hill, you see plants and saplings just bending in its wake and then you see the main, uh, the main gun swivel around. It's an awesome, powerful sight. 80 tonnes of powerful metal and then you hear the gun go off. It's kind of a powerful, terrifying sight. And you think, thank God it's on my side. But this image of God is similar, isn't it? This image of Christ, this awesome, powerful sight. And yet, Christ is not a champion that we can say, thank God he's on our side. But by his loving kindness, he enables us to be on his side. He's not our mascot on our team, but a powerful almighty one onto whose team he invites us. And this is the reality behind all things. True power, true justice, truth itself exists in the wise and powerful and just Jesus Christ. And it's not surprising that this image is entirely overwhelming to John and he falls down as if dead. Well, perhaps to his immense relief and to the comfort of all those who join Christ on his side, who side with him, this impressive, powerful figure reaches out gently to restore and comfort John. And so the first encouragement to the church, the first encouragement to us, is to remember who Christ is. Not weak, not absent, but powerful and strong and mighty. And so John is encouraged a second time as he remembers who Christ is. He remembers what Christ has been doing and has done. And so John hears again, have a look, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Don't be afraid, he says. This isn't a platitude of the type, oh, don't worry, I'm sure it'll work out okay. This is the words, don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. Christ says, I have power over all things from before all things to the completion of all things, from beginning to the end. I am the living one. I have overcome death, not just for myself, but for all who belong to me. John has described in the introduction to the book, back in verse 5, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings of the earth, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And here Jesus declares that he holds the keys to death and Hades, the place of the dead. you imagine what this image does for people who are feeling persecuted? What can Caesar do to them? Even if he puts them to death, it's Jesus who holds the keys to life. And John hears a further explanation of what he sees and hears. Have a look, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven stars, the seven angels of the churches or possibly uh, you've got a footnote there, seven messengers. We don't know exactly what this is referring to, whether it's messengers from the churches who've come to meet with John in his exile, whether it represents the leaders of the churches or or some kind of heavenly representatives of the church. But whatever they represent, have a look at where they are. Verse 16, In his right hand he held the seven stars. This mighty, all-powerful God holds the representatives of these churches in his hands. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, where are they in relation to this all-powerful Christ figure? Well, Christ is standing amongst the lampstands, not distant, not absent, but they're amongst the churches. You see the comfort and the security that this vision brings to the early church and indeed to us. That the one who holds the keys to life, who has overcome death himself, is standing in the midst of the churches holding their angels in his hands. This is a picture of the reality of who we are as a church. Church of who Christ is as our powerful saviour. Nothing can stand against him. There is no truth apart from him. His victory is assured. And he stands amongst the churches that feel so weak and helpless, holding their angels in his hands. Does this bring comfort and security to you? As you face the scorn of friends, the disappointments of church not growing as we'd like it to, of active and passive resistance, as we doubt the proximity of Christ, his love and care for us, As we question whether what we've been taught is true. As we're tempted to follow after the things of this world. Well, here again, this message of comfort and security. The reminder of who Christ is. The reminder of what he's done and where he is standing amongst the churches. And what he continues to do in and for and through us, his church. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your love you sent your son into the world as a helpless baby. That he died in our place as a bloody saviour. And that you raised him to new life. As king over all things, we thank you and praise you for his justice and mercy, his power and his wisdom. And we pray that for all the struggles and barriers and things that might take us away from you. Or make following you seem hard or without rewards, remind us of this vision Remind us of who Christ is and what he has done and what he has promised to do for us. Remind us that Christ himself is holding the representatives of our church in his hands and standing in our midst with the keys to life forever and ever. Amen.